The scripture text this morning is from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Well, it's an absolute privilege to be with you this morning, an absolute joy of mine um, to, to preach this morning. I want to begin by relating to a story, and this is a very powerful story of two women. Now, one of these women was pregnant um, and just gave birth, right? And then the other one was very soon to give birth. One of these women was uh, from a noble family, and the other was from um, uh, slavery. She was a slave woman. It was the year 203 AD, and these women's names were Perpetua and Felicity. Perpetua and Felicity. Now, Perpetua had, had followed the, the, the path of her mother, and she had converted to Christianity. And mind you, at this time in history, becoming a Christian was a very dangerous thing. Um, indeed, it was almost like a death sentence. In, in the year 203, Emperor Severus was persecuting those who were converting to Christianity. Still, nonetheless, Perpetua gives her life to Jesus Christ. Her father, he was a pagan. And when he heard the news of her conversion, he, he came to her and he threw everything he had at her. Don't, don't be a Christian. Your, your, your baby needs you. He's still nursing don't, don't be a Christian. Your, your family loves you. What about me, your father? Will, will you cause us to suffer your loss for this faith? It's said that Perpetua pointed at a water pot, and she said, Father, do you see this water pot? Can it be called by anything other than what it is? And he said, no, of, of course not. And she said, neither can I be called by anything other than what I am, a Christian. Now, Perpetua was arrested with four other Christian converts, one of them being the eight-month pregnant Felicity. They were thrown in, in prison, and mind you, you know, prison at this time in history was not like prison today. Um, it was terrible, right? It was dark. It was hot. It was overcrowded. And yet, Perpetua writes in her journal that the most excruciating pain she experienced was not, not the prison, but it was being separated from her newborn baby son. Similarly, Felicity, the most excruciating pain that she experienced was not the prison, not the conditions, but it was the unbearable thought of being killed too soon before giving birth to her baby, for her baby to suffer the same fate as her for her faith. In the Lord's providence, Felicity gave birth two days before uh, the day of execution, and a, a Christian woman in the city adopted her baby daughter. Now, the, the day came, they were, they were to be executed, the day of martyrdom, and they were set to face wild beasts in the arena. 
And it's said that as Perpetua and Felicity went out, the executioners demanded that they put on these, these clothes, these garments that were dedicated to the pagan gods, you know, like Zeus, Poseidon, and so on and so forth. And it said that Perpetua refused, and she challenged them, saying, we have come out here of our own free will so that we would not lose the freedom to worship our God. We, we have given ourselves freely into your hands, given up our lives so that we would not have to worship your gods. And so the executioners stripped Perpetua and Felicity naked and sent them into the arena to face the wild beasts. And they were, they were attacked, they were mauled, and finally they were sent to face the sword of the gladiator. And it said that Perpetua called out once more and said, Stand fast in the faith. Love one another. And do not let our sufferings be to you a stumbling block. And Perpetua and Felicity stood side by side together. And they were killed by the sword for the Lord Jesus Christ. My hope for you this morning is that like Perpetua and Felicity, you would be so captivated by King Jesus. You would be so ready to serve him in life or in death that you would give yourself to him as a free will offering and a living sacrifice. No matter what circumstances you find yourself in, whether you are young or old, rich or poor, healthy or ill, male or female, pregnant or not, it does not matter. Give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King. Now let's seek the Lord in prayer to this end. King Jesus, may you be highly exalted this morning. Father, we, we pray that, that, that by your spirit and by your word, you would open our eyes and our hearts to be captivated by our Lord Jesus Christ. Stir up our hearts, O oh Lord, to ask what the King commands and give us what you command and command whatever you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the, the text this morning is the glorious, the beautiful Psalm 110. And something that, that, that you should know about this text is that it is the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. It is the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. You're like, what, what does that mean, Blaine? It means that it's really, 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 really important, okay? And you would do very well to listen to me, um, no, no matter how boring I may be to you, or hard to follow, or fast at speaking, or whatever else. You would do very well to listen, not because I'm an expert, but because of the magnitude of this text, okay? So I adjure you, please um, listen as best you can. Do not tune me out, and do not fall asleep. Um, so with that said, there, there's one thing that we need to say that we need to understand before we jump into this text. And that is this, that Psalm 110 is a psalm of David. And we all know who David was, right? David was the king of Israel. And in scripture, there are several things that are commanded of the king. If you remember back in Deuteronomy 17, the, the king is commanded to make a copy of the law. He's, he's to make a copy of the scriptures, the Bible. And he's to meditate on it day and night so that he won't turn from it to the right or to the left. Now, th this is really important for us to understand. And it's this, David understood the Bible really well, okay? David was really well-versed in the scriptures. David, if you will, was a biblical scholar. Um, he, he had been meditating on, on, on scripture, the book um, of Genesis, all the way to what was written up to his time. 
And he sees this, this, this pattern, the promises of God, and it deeply influences what he writes in Psalm 110. Okay, are you, are you tracking with what I'm saying? Psalm 110 is so embedded and enriched with the, the story of Scripture, which David knew so well, that if we want to understand Psalm 110, we have to understand the story of Scripture. Does that make sense? And the main, the main point that, that David is, is putting forth in Psalm 110, the ma- main thing that he's tugging on is this. God has established the people that he has entered into covenant with as king priests. Okay, God has established the people that he has entered into covenant with as king priests. In the beginning at creation, when God creates this, this universe, the cosmic temple, he places man as his image in the garden. And man is to both rule the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. That is, he's to be like a king. And he's, he's told to work and keep the garden. He's to be like a priest. These terms, work and keep, are the same terms used of the Levitical priests and what they do in the tabernacle and the temple. So, so God places man, his image, in creation to be king priests, vice regents, to mediate God's presence to the world. And you, you know the story really well. What does man do? He rebels against God, right? He, he sins against the Lord. And consequently, his status as king and priest is marred. It's tarnished. He's no longer able to subdue the earth like he once was because the earth was subjected to futility. He's no longer able to mediate the presence of God like he once was because of sin. But what does God do? God, being rich in mercy, comes and he speaks light into the darkness. He speaks hope into despair. In Genesis 3.15, do you remember that verse? The, the, the Lord promises that the seed of the woman would come and crush the, the head of the serpent. And so, in, in some sense, this seed of the woman that's promised is going to be a new and better Adam. Why? Because he's going to do what Adam failed to do. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? And in, in that same manner, he's going to be a new and better king priest. He's going to be the perfect king priest, the seed of the woman. And so scripture continues, and this pattern continues from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Israel and finally to David. And David sees this, David knows this, understands it, and he sees it in his own life. And what he does in Psalm 110 is he projects this pattern into the future concerning his son who is to fulfill all scripture and finally redeem and accomplish the promises of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so, with that said, we're going to, in good Baptist fashion, we're going to take this psalm in three points. So the first point is going to be this. The king enthroned and given authority to conquer. The king enthroned and given authority to conquer. We'll see that in verses 1 to 3. And then we will see the priest appointed and given blessing to mediate. The priest appointed and given blessing to mediate. We'll see that in verse 4. And finally, thirdly, the victorious king priest who conquers and mediates. The victorious king priest who conquers and mediates. We'll see that in verses 5 to 7. Before jumping in, let's, let's just read this psalm once more, and then we will walk through it. Follow along with me. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Amen. So first, we see the king enthroned and given authority to conquer in verses 1 to 3. The psalm begins with a statement, a declaration, an utterance of God in verse 1. David writes, the Lord says to my Lord. And now you'll notice there, if you look at your Bibles really closely, the first occurrence of the word Lord is in small capital letters. Do you see that? That, that is the Bible's way of telling you that the word here is God's covenant name, Yahweh. Okay? You remember back in, in Exodus 3 when God appears to Moses in the burning bush and he calls forth, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you. He, he reveals his, his covenant name, Yahweh, to Moses. That's what the, t- the term is here. So Yahweh says to my Lord, that is David's Lord. And the blaring question for Saul is, who is David's Lord, right? Well, from context, it's, it's really clear that David's Lord is the Christ, is the, the Messiah, the, the future king, the promised son, the one to come, the, the one from Genesis 3.15. And, and how, how do we know this? Well, first of all, um, if you remember, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is divided into five books. And Psalm 110 is w- within the fifth book of the Psalter. And this fifth book is all about the future salvation that the king is bringing. So already, with its placement, it's in the context of the future king. You couple that with the surrounding psalms, which are also messianic, that is, they're about the future king, and the promises made to David in 2 Samuel 7, it's really clear that David's Lord is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the future king. He's the promised son. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? So Yahweh says to David's Lord, who is the Messiah, the Christ... And what's he say? He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, that statement should make us pause in awe and wonder. It should make us pause. For anyone to sit next to God is terrifyingly significant. Okay? No one sits next to God in Scripture. No one but David's Lord. No one but David's Lord. This language of sitting is directly connected to Psalm 2. Do you remember that psalm? The nations are are raging. They're plotting against God and his anointed. And in verse 4 of Psalm 2, David says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. So God is the one who sits in the heavens, signifying his, his power, his supremacy, his authority, his kingship over all things. And he invites David's Lord to sit with him. But not just that, he, he, he invites him to sit at his right, at his right hand, signifying power, authority, honor. Often, and interestingly, in, in Scripture, the right hand is, is used to give blessing. 
It's used to give blessing. And in Exodus 5, Yahweh's right hand is said to be glorious in power. Glorious in power. And it is what crushes the enemy. So, what is happening in Psalm 1101? David's Lord is being enthroned by Yahweh, by God, as king over everything. Okay? He's being enthroned by God as king over everything. And the next line makes this even clearer. David writes, recording what what God has said, until I make your enemies your footstool. So Yahweh has promised David's Lord to subject all his enemies under his feet. And this language of being put underfoot is directly connected to Genesis 3.15, which we've already talked about. The the seed of the woman is going to crush the the head of the serpent, and the serpent's going to do what? He's going to bruise his heel. And so the idea is that the seed of the woman is going to stomp on the head of the serpent. He's going to be brought underfoot. Does that make sense? And Yahweh is promising to David's Lord that he's going to bring his enemies underfoot. And we are very blessed to live quite some time after David, aren't we? And we, we have received final revelation in the New Testament. And I just want to tell you, it is absolutely amazing how many times this verse, Psalm 110.1, is quoted in reference to Jesus. It's absolutely astonishing. In the Gospel of Mark, when asked by the high priest if, if he was the Messiah, Jesus said, I am. I am. And you will see the Son of Man, that's Daniel 7, seated at the right hand of power, Psalm 110, and coming with the clouds of heaven. In Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, Jesus has died, he's he's been buried, and he's been resurrected. Peter stands up, and in his sermon, he says, this Jesus you crucified, and this Jesus God raised up, and of of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It doesn't stop there. In Ephesians, Paul quotes Psalm 110. He says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, power, authority, dominion, And he has given him a name above every name, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and given him as head to the church, which is his body. Not only that, but in Hebrews, the author of the Hebrews writes, after making purification for sin, Jesus sat down at the majesty, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it goes on and on and on, all over the New Testament. So so behold your, your King Jesus, He's high and lifted up, exalted, seated at the right hand of God with all things under his feet. That is your king. David continues in verse 2, and he he reflects on what Yahweh has said to his Lord in verse 1. Okay, And it's almost like David is talking to the future king, his son, and he's cheering him on. He says, The Lord sends forth from Zion... In verse 2, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now this language, again, is connected to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So so Yahweh 
has set his son, David's Lord, on Zion. He's enthroned him on Zion. And now David writes in Psalm 110, encouraging the future king, saying that God is granting him the authority to rule. He is sending him forth from Zion with a mighty scepter. That, that language of scepter is also very important. You remember in, in Genesis 40, uh, 40, 49, Judah, the tribe of Judah, is promised a scepter. And in Numbers, there's a prophecy about the, the coming one, who will be like a scepter and crush the, the enemies. And in Psalm 2, David says that he will be like a rod of iron, which crushes the enemies like, like a, a potter's vessel. And so what is happening in Psalm 110:2? David is saying that, that Yahweh is going to grant his Lord, the future king, the authority to enact and fulfill all the promises of God, beginning in Genesis 3:15. Yahweh is giving him the authority to conquer Genesis 3.15 and redeem. In verse 3, David continues in this thought, cheering on his Lord, who is our King Jesus. And he says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So again, Yahweh has enthroned David's Lord as king over all things. He has given him the authority to conquer and redeem. And now David writes that on the day of of his Lord's power, his people are going to be like free will offerings. They're going to offer themselves freely to the king. There's not going to be a draft. There's no conscription necessary. The people are going to see the king in all his beauty and majesty, and they're going to give themselves freely to him. They're going to follow him into battle, even in the face of death. But not only that, but but the the people and and the king are arrayed in holy garments. Did you see that? They're they're, They're going to go forth in the splendors of holiness. And this phrase, holy garments... I think can refer both to the king and to the people. The, the king is arrayed in holy garments and the people are arrayed in holy garments. And what that means is it, is it has this idea of light. The people go forth like light. The people go forth in, in purity and cleanliness. They're not stained by sin. Still, nonetheless, the, the people's beauty is only a reflection of the king's beauty, the glory of the king. You see what David writes? He says that the king comes from the womb of the morning. The womb of the morning, the the womb of the dawn. The king is like the first break of sunlight that, that shines into the darkness and causes it to flee. That is what the king is like. And in light of, of the whole Bible, and as we read the Bible like Christians, there may be eternal connotations to this phrase from the womb of the dawn. That is, you know, in the beginning, when God created, he said, let there be light. That, that is where this king comes from. He comes from the beginning. He is the word that proceeded forth from God in creation. He comes from before creation. He comes from eternity. David also says, the dew of your youth will be yours. And this phrase, just to be very honest, is really obscure. But, but what we can say is that the king will possess or he will be like the dew of the morning, okay? We know what dew is, right? You know what dew is? It's that stuff out on the grass in the morning, the moisture. It, it gives life and sustenance to the land. It's, it symbolizes the hope of new day. 
And you remember in the Exodus narratives, when manna comes down, it comes down like dew. It's the same idea here, that the king is going to be like dew, new morning dew. He, he comes from the womb of the dawn, and he is begotten of God like new morning dew, bringing hope, new life, new day, new mercy, and giving life and sustenance to the land and to the people. So, in verses 1 to 3, we, we see the future king from David's line enthroned by God and given authority to conquer, that is, accomplish the promises of God and redemption. But what are we to make of this? What, what are we to make of this? I submit to you that our response should be something like what the sons of Korah write in Psalm 45. In Psalm 45, the sons of Korah are meditating on the future king, and they say this, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. And your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Speaking to the king, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Can you say that of King Jesus? Do you look at King Jesus and say with the sons of Korah, you are the fairest of the sons of men. You are the most beautiful. Lord Jesus, you are altogether lovely and glorious. Do, do you see Jesus in his beauty, his splendor, his glory? He, he comes from the womb of the dawn. He's begotten eternally of God the Father like new morning dew. Do you see King Jesus, the one who is exalted and seated at the right hand of God? If you see him, if you hear what I am saying, what should you do? You should give yourself to him as a free will offering. As a free will offering. That is what the people do in verse 3. The people give themselves like free will offerings to the king. And the idea here is what Paul writes in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So be a free will offering to Jesus. Be a living sacrifice to Jesus. Give up your whole self, your whole self. Give up your body. It doesn't matter if you're young or if you're old. It doesn't matter if you're pretty or if you're not. Give up yourselves, your, your mind. It doesn't matter if you're smart or if you're dumb, right? Give up yourselves, your, your heart. It's okay if you are broken and weak and discouraged. Give up yourselves, your, your actions. It doesn't matter where you work or what you do. Do all to the glory of God. Be a free will offering to, to the king and a living sacrifice to him. Let your motto be with, with Paul in the book of Philippians. To live as Christ and to die as gain. Can you say that this morning in sincerity and honesty? To live as Christ and die is gain. Be ready each morning to ask the king, what does the king command? And be ready to do it. How can you better live for the king today? Maybe you spend too much time on, on useless things. Social media, whatever it is, you probably have something coming to mind. 
Get rid of those things and be free will offerings to the king. Live for him. And like perpetual infelicity, be ready to die for him. That's the first point. The king enthroned and granted authority to conquer. Secondly, in verse 4, we see the priest appointed and given blessing to mediate. David writes in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here in verse four, like in verse one, Yahweh is speaking, okay? In verse one, Yahweh made a declaration. He made an utterance. And in verse four, he's making an oath. He's promising by his own self. As Hebrews will put it, he's making an unchangeable oath. And what what he promises, David's Lord, is rather astonishing, isn't it? What's he say? He says that he's gonna be both a king and a priest. He's gonna be appointed as a king and a priest. And not just any priest, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And this is where things get a little hard to follow. So, so bear with me. I'm going to try to make it as clear as possible. And there are three things that, 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 that we need to consider to understand why David brings up Melchizedek here. The first thing is this. Um, back in Genesis, you remember in Genesis 14, this is where Melchizedek is mentioned. Abraham, his kinsman Lot, is captured by these wicked kings. And what does Abraham do? He takes 318 men and he goes and conquers these wicked kings. He he pursues them. He strikes them down. And at the end of that story, the mysterious figure Melchizedek comes out. Melchizedek comes to Abraham and he brings bread and he brings wine and he comes to bless Abraham. And Moses, who writes the book of Genesis, records that Melchizedek is king of Salem. Salem, which is Jerusalem. But not only that, but Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High, the, the one who created the heavens and the earth. So this Melchizedek figure is both king and priest. He worships the same God that Abraham worships. And I submit to you that, that Moses wants you to see something by making this explicit claim that Melchizedek was both king and priest. What he wants you to see is that Melchizedek follows the same pattern of Adam and Noah. We've already talked about this, right? Adam was a king priest, Noah was a king priest, and now all of a sudden, Melchizedek is a king priest. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this, that Moses presents Melchizedek in close relationship with Abraham, okay? Melchizedek is only mentioned a few times in the Bible. The first is in Genesis 14, when he was alive, the, the second is in Psalm 110, which we're considering. And then he's, he's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, and that's basically it. And the point is this, that, that, that Moses sees Melchizedek in close relationship with Abraham and the covenant God made with Abraham. You remember the covenant God made with Abraham? To remind you of what he promised him, he promised him a great name. He promised him a land. And he promised him an offspring in whom the nations would be blessed. And so Moses sees significance in the figure of Melchizedek and records this story because Melchizedek is in close relationship with Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. Does that make sense? That's the second thing. The third thing is this, third and final thing. David sees himself connected to Abraham. In 2 Samuel 7, when God made a covenant with David, he promised him basically the same things that he promised Abraham. He promised him a great name, land, and an offspring in whom the nations would be blessed. 
And so David sees himself as a, a new Abraham, if you will. He, he understands that the son that is promised to him is going to be the one to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, to fulfill those, those promises, those blessings. And also, David sees himself connected to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was king of Salem. David is king of Jerusalem, the same place. Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High, and David, in many occasions in Scripture, acts like a priest. He wears priestly garments. He does priestly activities. He sings priestly songs. He, he, he does sacrifices, and so on and so forth. And so you put all this together, and it makes a lot of sense why David includes Melchizedek here in Psalm 110 all of a sudden. It's really not all of a sudden. What he's saying is that his Lord, David's Lord, his son, who is Jesus Christ, is going to be the one like Melchizedek, a king priest, who fulfills and finally mediates the, the promises made to Abraham. Does that make sense? Jesus is going to be the one, the king priest, who mediates the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to have the greatest of names. He's going to prepare eternal land flowing with milk and honey. And he is going to have an offspring that includes people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So, God appoints David's Lord as priest and gives him eternal blessing to mediate. That's what's going on in verse 4. And with that said, just as means of application, there are three words for you. Three words for you. Jesus Christ, who is our beloved high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, who, who is David's Lord, the one appointed by God to mediate eternal blessings. This Jesus, he is a better priest Consequently, he mediates a better covenant, and so in him we have a better hope. Okay, He's a better priest, better covenant, better hope. Jesus is a better priest. He is not like the Levitical priests. He doesn't offer up bulls and goats. What does he do? He offers up himself. He, he spills his own blood. And then What's he do? He sits down at the right hand of God. He doesn't stand in the, the temple continually making sacrifices. His work was once for all. Jesus is a better priest. His priesthood is also eternal. That's what Yahweh promises in Psalm 110.4. He will be a priest forever and ever. Consequently, he mediates a better covenant. This covenant is not like the old covenant. No, in this covenant, the law of God is written on the people's hearts. The people of God are filled with the Spirit of God. And finally, the people of God are actually made to be His people, and God their God. This is exactly what the author of the Hebrews is arguing in Hebrews 7 and 8. And if we had time, we could read those chapters, and it would be really clear to you, but we don't have that time. So I encourage you to, to, to go and read those chapters on your own. So a better priest, a better covenant, and because of these things, we have a better hope in Jesus Christ. We have a hope in Jesus Christ that goes behind the veil. It goes behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies like an anchor into the presence of God. Through Jesus, we can draw near to the presence of God. Through Jesus, who is God himself, we can come into God's courts. Do you see the, the glory of the Son? Do you see what kind of hope you have in him? You have access to the presence of God, even now through Jesus Christ, because he is a better priest, and he has given a better covenant, and we have a better hope. That's the second point. Third, finally, we see the victorious king priest 
who conquers and mediates. The victorious king priest who conquers and mediates. In verses 5 to 7, David writes, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Interestingly, in verse 1, Yahweh invites David's Lord to sit at his right hand. And here in verse 5, David says to his Lord that Yahweh's going to be at his right hand. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? I think this speaks to the significance of the, the inseparable action, work, operation that Yahweh has with David's Lord. Yahweh, God, and David's Lord, they act of one accord. They act as one in fulfilling the promises of redemption. And, and, and David's Lord, the king priest of Yahweh, what is he going to do? He's going to shatter kings. He's going to shatter kings on the day of his wrath. This is once again connected to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, um, um, David writes, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Here in Psalm 110.5, the son's wrath is kindled. It's the day of his wrath. And what does he do? He destroys wicked kings on the way. He shatters kings. Not only that, but he, he executes judgment among the nations. He, he fills it with corpses. And ultimately, he shatters chiefs over the wide earth. Now, I want you to look at that verse. He shatters chiefs. You probably have a footnote in your Bible. And, and in the lower margin, it's going to say, or the head. And I think that's what's going on here. The word chiefs is the singular, and it means head. Okay, and that should start ringing bells immediately. Head. That's connected to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so that's what's going on here. The, the, the king priest of Yahweh, David's Lord, is going to go out and conquer the serpent and all those who are aligned with him. You see, there, there are these, these wicked kings who have aligned themselves with the serpent. And their fate is the same as the serpent. Their heads will be crushed. But then, there's a contrast between verses 5 and 6 and 7. And I want you to look at that. In verses 5 and 6, the enemy's heads are crushed. And in verse 7, the king priest of Yahweh, David's Lord, his head is raised. It is lifted up. Did you see that? After battle, what does the king priest do? He goes and he drinks from the brook by the way. And his head is raised. This, this language of, of brook, by the way, it calls to mind the blessed man in Psalm 1. I trust you know that psalm. The, the blessed man, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. Brook, by the way, streams of water. And he gives his fruit in its season. His leaf does not wither. And his way is known by the Lord. And so here in verse 7, contrasting with the enemies in verses 5 and 6, David's Lord is victorious. After battle, he's refreshed from the streams and his head is raised. The king priest is victorious in his conquest and in what God has appointed him to do by mediating the blessings of God. 
Now, what I want you to know by means of of another application is this. As goes the king, so goes the people, okay? As goes the king, so goes the people. You see, those who align themselves with the enemy of God, the serpent, those who are against God and his anointed, the king priest, the son, who is Jesus Christ, they will suffer the same fate that the dreadful ancient serpent will suffer. Their heads will be crushed. But those who are aligned with Jesus, the king priest, David's Lord, they will be refreshed. They will be blessed. They themselves will be like trees planted by streams of water that give fruit in their season. Their heads will be raised like King Jesus. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you an enemy of God? Are you an enemy of Jesus Christ? And I, I don't necessarily mean, you know, that you, you wag your head against Jesus and you have set yourself against him. I, I, I mean something maybe as simple as indifference. Are you indifferent to who Jesus is and what he's done? Or do you claim to be a servant of King Jesus and then live like an enemy? If so, I appeal to you to see your fate. Your head will be crushed. And I implore you to to repent, to to turn from from wicked ways and kiss the Son, Psalm 2. Take refuge in Him and be blessed. Because if you align yourself with King Jesus, if you turn and trust in Him, as goes the King, so goes the people. Your head will be raised. You will be blessed. You will be refreshed. You know, King King Jesus, he, He died. He was buried. But He was resurrected, wasn't He? And he sits at the right hand of God. And for those of us who are his servants, we have that same hope. We have a hope that goes beyond the grave. And so we can look in the face of death and we can say, death, where is your sting? Where is your power? Because our hope is in Jesus Christ who is raised. Now this this idea, as goes the king, so goes the people, I think is illustrated well in in John's Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. In chapter 19, if you want to turn there, it's not going to be on the screen. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, John John is using language that's embedded with Psalm 110, and I think it makes this point well. John writes, Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you see, do you see King Jesus in his glory, his splendor? That is a glorious hope. And if you're here this morning and, and, and uh, the, the message of a conquering king is not good news to you, I just submit to you that maybe you need a perspective change. 
Because this is the good news of the Bible, that we have a conquering king who's going to crush the head of the serpent and redeem us. But he's not just a king. He, he, he's a priest. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And his name is love. And he mediates and fulfills the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. See the son and trust in him. Now I want to close just briefly with, with another story just to tie this together for you and send you on your way. The apostle John, who we just read from, he had a disciple and his disciple's name was Polycarp. Some of you may know this name. Polycarp, I know it's a funny name, but that was his name, Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Polycarp had grown quite old. He was in his late 80s. And he had served the Lord all his life. And at this time in history, once again, like Perpetua and Felicity, there was much persecution. And so the, 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 the empire was seeking Polycarp, and they wanted to put him to death. And they finally found him, they seized him, they arrested him, and he simply said, God's will be done. God's will be done. Time came to execute Polycarp. And it said that, that um, a voice came from heaven, and several of the Christians who were there with Polycarp heard it along with him, and it said, be strong, Polycarp, and act like a man. And so the, the executioners, the proconsul, they, they started to threaten him with all things. Um, and they told him to swear by Caesar and say, take away the atheists. The atheists um, at this time in history is used in reference to Christians because Christians did not believe in the Greek and Roman gods. Okay? And Polycarp, wittingly, he, he, he points to the crowd of pagans and he says, take away the atheists. He calls them the atheists because they don't believe in the one true God. They continue to press him. They say, reproach Christ and be spared and live. And Polycarp responds, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they threatened him with beasts and with many other things. And finally, they threatened him with fire. And Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire that will burn for a short while and then be quenched? For you are ignorant of the eternal fire and punishment stored up for the ungodly. And then he said, but why do you delay? Do what you will. And so they tied him to the pyre. He prayed, and they lit the flame. And it said that the flame did not consume him. It went around him. And so the soldiers went up, and they stabbed him, much like they stabbed Jesus. And he bled, and his blood put out the flame. And so Polycarp died for King Jesus. I just say this story to, to close with this once again. It doesn't matter um, if you're young or if you're old, if you're male or female, pregnant, not pregnant, whatever. It doesn't matter your circumstances. Give yourself as a free will offering to King Jesus, who is our great king priest. We have a great hope in him because he is our high priest and he mediates a better covenant. And be assured that, that as goes the king, so goes the people. And so you can live with absolute joy and confidence, even in, in terrible suffering and in the face of death, because our king priest, Jesus Christ, he lives and he is seated at the right hand of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for this glorious text, Psalm 110. Lord, we praise you that you have appointed a son as king and priest. 
Lord, that you have appointed Jesus Christ to conquer and to mediate. How glorious is your word in this truth. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of scripture. Lord, we pray this morning that you would cause our hearts to look and turn to him and behold him, see him as a beautiful, treasure him. He is the one who comes from the womb of the dawn. He's begotten of you, Father, like new morning dew. God, would you give us unshakable hope? As goes the king, so goes the people. Our hope is one beyond the grave. Help us to live in light of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.